0: Hi there, Duncan Green here with the weekly roundup of From Poverty to Power. Um, It was a rubbish week for me. Uh, I managed to combine in one week, root canal, getting wrenched about by an osteopath, finding out that my bike frame had just sheared in two for no reason, and then at the same time, snapping my key in the front door and getting locked out for an hour. So I'm hoping that's all the disasters for the rest of the year, all crammed into this week. And I still managed to keep the blog going, so rah-rah. Um, so here's the summary of what went up on the blog in between disasters. Um, on Monday, it was the start of the annual 16 days of activism against, uh, on violence against women. And I put up an interview with Ulsi Surin-Jamsran, who's uh, easier known as Ulsi, from uh, Moldova. Ulsi is uh, an, one of those kind of charismatic, dynamic development entrepreneurs who runs the UN Women Office in Moldova. She's actually from Mongolia. And she has uh, changed the way UN women work. And they've basically started what she calls positive deviance, which is that they find the women who are survivors of violence who want to speak out and they base all their work around them. They get them to do heart-wrenching videos of them writing and reading letters to their daughters. They get them to network with uh, women in the communities who have far higher levels of trust in them than in outsiders from the UN or from NGOs. And it's completely galvanized UN Women's work in terms of getting women to ask for access to services, shelters, that kind of thing. So um, very interesting. A bit of a discussion in the comments on that post about whether this is actually positive deviance or just good development work where you are people-centered in the way you design your programs. But um, I suspect this will be the case, that when you look at positive deviance, it sometimes ends up looking like other things too. So anyway, just a really inspiring example of good development work. Tuesday and Wednesday was a two-part blog uh, on the big conversation last week of the, of the the thinking and working politically crew which is a bunch of people from aid agencies consultants, academia, uh, I think I'm probably the, the, the token NGO person, um, trying to introduce a more political approach to thinking about power and, ref- uh, and the way aid programmes work um, some of the issues we discussed, it was a big, very sort of intense day last week. The reasons, why is it being actually quite successful? TWP sort of sprinkled all over the project documents. Lots of people claim to be doing it. So a couple of things on that. One is that it, it actually goes with the grain of reality. People working on the ground know that this is how the world works and therefore are very relieved when they hear somebody talking their language in terms of a donor or an academic. Um, Another one is, of course, that um, hype gets adopted and doesn't always change practice. So we've got a big challenge, I think, to distinguish hype from reality in terms of how much is actually changing. Uh, Other things we talked about, uh, there's a a widespread feeling that thinking politically is going better than working politically. So that's kind of uh, links up to the hype versus reality question. The whole movement is still very white and Northern, although people pointed out that lots of people in other countries are doing exactly this and have been doing it all along, they just don't call it TWP. But there is a, a problem I think that it's very driven still by an essentially you know, colonial coalition and, we, and the next stage of TWP has to be to get out of the Northern capitals and the Northern donor agencies and change the way it's done. A uh, big discussion on working with the grain versus working against the grain. The grain in increasing numbers of countries is looking pretty unappetizing. So that big idea of you know, working with the grain, finding um, political settlements, working within existing institutions and finding small steps forward is becoming less attractive when actually we should be in some circumstances encouraging those people who want to work against the grain. And there isn't just one grain in any country. So which grain do we choose? And so a questioning of that whole working with the grain framework. I had a sort of road to Damascus conversion on toolkits. I'm always very critical of toolkits, but actually, Toolkits are a crucial way that the aid sector changes its behaviours. What toolkits do is codify a new approach and make it accessible to new generations, new entrants. and And that allows you to spread a good idea. The question is, what is a good toolkit and what is a bad toolkit? What is a toolkit that gets you asking more intelligent questions and looking in more interesting places? And what is a toolkit that becomes a substitute for thought, a checklist, something you just have to, you know, tick the boxes and then get back to doing business as usual. So if we can get the right kind of toolkits, I think that would be a crucial part in taking TWP to the to the next level. And then in terms of the crystal ball, you know, is this whole thing just a bubble while yet another development fad which will pop and will go away? Is it going to get institutionalized in an interesting form where it actually changes the way we design aid programs the way we evaluate aid programs the way we judge them or is it going to get dumbed down and turned into a checklist i think it could go in any of those three directions and it's an interesting thing to keep an eye on thursday i wrote up a a webinar uh, conversation i had last week with five oxham country teams about narratives so this is you know one of those words which are suddenly coming from every side in in the aid and development business Um, Yeah, we have to get better at narratives. What is the narrative? And I don't think there, I think I worry whenever I hear a singular, the narrative, there's lots of narratives. But what are the narratives that we need to engage in? How do we get better at either challenging bad narratives, promoting progressive narratives, uh, not just getting into kind of wonky policy detail, but thinking about that big story that gets to people in the heart, not just the head. Um, Some of the things, and yeah, my role in these webinars is to just go, well, what about this? And what about that? And what about this? I'm a what abouter. Um, So some of the whatabouts I chucked in were, um, you know, Oxfam, we think an awful lot about the message. We have these long policy reports full of evidence and footnotes with pages of policy recommendations. And then we expect them to almost like talk for themselves. But shouldn't we think much more about the messenger as well as the message? If you're trying to reach a certain target, you should be getting your message Mm -hmm. via the right messenger to the target. The the messenger has to be someone that the target uh, will listen to, either because they think they're uh, credible or that they're scary um, or that they're legitimate or something. So we need to think about which messengers carry messages into different communities and different places. Do we do, do we do defense or, or off, offense on narratives? Do we just sort of um, defend uh, uh, good stuff? Or, or do we attack bad narratives? You know, we need to think whether we want to... Do we, do we get forced onto the defensive of, prote- of saying so, you know, all these, in, for example, attacks on civil society's space are bad? Or do we get out on the front foot and say civil society is great? So, you know, Gandhi was civil society. Civil society gave you a health service and education service. How do, we, how do we sort of position ourselves rather than just always be on the back foot, always be defensive? Can we get more rigorous about narratives? Narratives, when people talk about narratives, it's real hand-waving territory. People go make general assertions about narratives with a couple of anecdotes. What would rigor look like when you're talking about narratives? Could you actually recruit people from the ad business who test messages all the time and actually test a bunch of narratives to see which ones are really working um, and actually get more rigorous in terms of how we develop and abandon narratives. And then, do we want new narratives or old? There's always a tremendous urge to come up with neologisms, with new phrases, with new, new is exciting, right? So, so we come up with you know, tax justice or um, resilience, or there's always new words coming out into the de- development lexicon and they just don't resonate with an awful lot of people. So that's great if you're appealing to a small, wonk community who want to be on to the next big thing. But if you're trying to appeal more broadly, there are deeply embedded narratives. There's. Religious narratives, you know, Alex Evans has written a really good book called The Myth Gap on that, but there are modern popular culture narratives. When I'm teaching at the LSE, the one thing that I know, all my students who come from all over the world, but from basically a sort of elite, literate uh, sort of background, cosmopolitan background, they're all going to get references to Harry Potter and probably Lord of the Rings and maybe The Matrix and Hunger Games. So these are kind of, these are resonant narratives which are already in people's hearts. So we should get much better at sort of using those as a as a bridge into people. Then, Friday, uh, the Friday Post was um, yet another conversation on research for impact. This is just something which keeps coming up. On this occasion, uh, I was taken out for a coffee by Duncan McLaren, who's just been appointed by the Lancaster Environmental Centre as a professor in practice. Which is this, uh, it's another pip it's like me at, uh, at the London School of Economics, and he's been asked to look at for the, for the center about how do they get their research picked up more by activists, NGOs, activists, campaigners. Um, so we were talking, you know, one of the first thing is that's a terrible way to frame it. You know, we've done our research. Now we want these people to use it is a terrible way in. You know, you need to actually be thinking, let's go talk to them about what kind of research they need. Let's actually, you know, to use a horrible word, co-create something rather than just think, okay, we've come down from our research mountain with our tablets of stone and who are the lucky people who are going to read them and use them? That is a really bad way to start. Anyway, um, we talked about things like the... Often the key to having influence with your research is your relationships, is talking, not writing. And yet academics are not always great talkers. They're not always great at relating, at making friends, at schmoozing. So how, what does that mean for <clears throat> how we support academics who want to work with activists? Do we actually, you know, how do we value that? How do we help them? You know, how do we, do we have to do, you know, Presentation skills? Yes, we do. Gosh, I've sat through some terrible academic presentations recently. Um, but also social skills. You know, it's really hard when you go into one of these conferences, you know you want to talk to that person, but they're already locked in a conversation with some other more sort of assertive, irritating uh, you know, uh, uh, person. How do you break in and get them talking to you about your issue? How do you do those kind of really painful cocktail party things, which absolutely make me cringe but maybe we have to do it. Another thing that uh, I think uh, actually academics and NGOs have in common is that we are much happier with creating new waves than riding existing waves. We've got this great new idea for solving climate change, for ending species loss, for sorting out the tax system. It's all neat, it's all self-contained. Will you please just adopt our big new idea? We, you know, if I ruled the world this is how it would be, why don't you listen? That's a really terrible way to get your research picked up because most people aren't going to do it. So how do we get better at spotting opportunities, riding waves, looking for the kind of compromises that can move things forward? Timescales. Academics work on a long sort of research pipeline. NGOs often need to respond to events, to sudden opportunities. It's really hard for academics to get out of that sort of, um, treadmill of paper writing and say okay here's a moment drop everything how do we support them yeah and and how do we encourage that I think there's a real fear of mistakes in academia I think you know, if you get taken down either in writing or uh, yeah in on social media or in public Academics love that they, they, you know, they tell the story of when so and so's numbers got exposed as a sham, uh, as wrong, and you know, someone got um, uh, beaten in a debate. It's very macho. It's not very pleasant. It, it's worse in some disciplines where it's more like a blood sport. Uh, other disciplines are more more kind, but um, that leads to people being very cautious about saying anything sort of useful, to be honest, in terms of advocacy. They, everything's caveated, everything's conditioned, everything's context-specific, and everything's cloaked in an academic jargon, which is often a, a sort of defensive mechanism uh, to prevent you being sort of exposed and caught out. That's not helpful. So I don't know how we get over that, but it's a real, it's a real issue. The other, the other sort of um, currency, I think, in academia, which can work both ways, is precision. So there's a real, uh, emphasis on precision. A lot of academic writing is about definitions. You're sort of, sort of looking at how different people have understood a particular concept, dissecting it, coming up with your own understanding of that particular concept. You know, and that to uh, people outside academia can look awfully like hair splitting. It's an obsession with precision when actually sometimes ambiguity can be very helpful. Um, you know, you get lots of people on board with a fuzz word, with a fuzzy concept. So actually, precision is counterproductive. But also, that constant search for precision weirdly actually undermines clarity, because by the end of it, no one can understand what the hell you're talking about. Um, and of course, final thing: if you write your brilliant research in the form of a gated journal paper no one outside academia will read it. It's not that we're too mean to pay 20 bucks to read an academic paper. It's that it's just such a pain to reclaim the 20 bucks from expenses that you just don't bother. So instead of doing that, you just go and try and find an open source version of it. And there's some great new tools to help you find open uh, source, but actually anything you want to to influence uh, activists with has to be open access. Final point, how to build bridges, you know, I I tend to critique, criticise academics quite a lot um, uh, and people get a bit upset about that. So I think, you know, clearly neither academia nor NGOs are monoliths. They are big systems with lots of different kinds of people in. There are pracademics, another dreadful word, but practical academics, practitioner academics, um, and they can be either the sort of the PhDs in Oxfam who are really smart, who keep some sort of links with their academic colleagues or they can be the, the kinds of academic who go out and sort of help NGOs or help activists who are activists in their spare time, who are just very committed to this. So how do we strengthen that overlapping bit of the Venn diagram? You know, So if you're working for an NGO and you're one of these people, then how do you recognise and value that role and support it? So should, for example, people have the uh, uh, option of, take, of getting two or four weeks a year recognised time to either catch up on their reading or to write up their experience and keep in the you know, ideas field, keep generating co- stuff, content, things people can read. And if you're an academic and you care about activism, how about secondments? How could they be valued? How could going to just you know, try and put your ideas into practice in an NGO advocacy team or on the ground uh, you know, actually just be immersed in uh, a grassroots movement somewhere, how would those things be valued um, and incentivized rather than seen as a kind of a self-indulgence? So I think if we're going to take this thing seriously, we actually need to change the way we we, uh, manage our time and and, and reward people and encourage people. Okay, end of rant. Uh, Have a good weekend, everybody.